Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today I have a special guest with us to talk about his book, uh, Dr. John Schneider. John Schneider is Professor Emeritus at Calvin and on Faculty of Philosophy at Grand Valley State University. He holds an MA in Historical and Systematic Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary and a PhD in Divinity from the University of Cambridge. He is the author of the book, The Good of Affluence, Seeking God in a Culture of Wealth, and that is the book he is here to talk about us today. John, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks. So your, your book was actually published a few years ago. I actually, I've actually had it on my shelf for a few years, and I'm like, man, I really want to read that. And my initial, you know, just reading the cover, not really knowing, not, not really diving into the book so much, uh, I actually thought the book was just some justification for why it's okay to be a wealthy person. And, you know, in the midst of political climate where being rich is often, you know, disdained by those on the left and those on the right don't really talk much about it, I, I didn't find it of... Uh, I didn't, I, it wasn't urgent for me to read it, but I picked it up this year and I started reading it and I was just engaged the whole way through. And uh, I, I just loved what you had to say about wealth and about culture and capitalism and what it means for Christians to be, you know, in the world. Um, so one of the things that kind of started off in your book was that capitalism isn't just an economic system, but there's a culture to it. So what do you mean by there's a culture to capitalism or a culture of affluence? Why is affluence the, the best word to use here? Well, that's a, that's a great question. By the way, I'm very glad that um, you think the book is still relevant. I, it came out uh, numerous years ago. And uh, I, do, I do think that some of the points in the book still stand as worth considering. As for your question, I think it's sometimes uh, overlooked that capitalism isn't just a uh, set of points about economics as some people present it as being. It's, well, at least it has come to represent a kind of culture um, that has certain uh, features and uh, one of the features is that most of the people in cultures of capitalism, so-called, are affluent by any historical or contemporary world standard. And that goes for a lot of people, not just those who we think of as affluent, like the Jeff Bezos of the world, or even, you know, kind of middle-class business owners. That's right. And and that experience, I wrote the book, and the book came out, I think, in 2004, um, has only increased as we see uh, rising middle classes in places like Brazil, India, uh, of course, China, and elsewhere in, 
amazed that nobody, I mean, really, I mean, it would be hard to find people that envisioned this kind of um, development 20 years ago when I, well, I guess it was uh, 2004 when I published the book. But when I published the book, I was just sort of um, predicting. I don't want to take credit for this, but uh, predicting that things like this would happen. Yes. Uh, societies would adopt certain kinds of uh, uh, legal and uh, political changes. I had predicted a lot of the, the great things that happened after 2004 in China, India, uh, Brazil. Um, what we have seen is uh, kind of an unheralded uh, and massive transition from uh, uh, trade commodity-based economy worldwide to uh, manufacturing-based economy. Yeah, I mean, it's been remarkable in, what, a decade and a half, the amount of poverty that has been reduced, and yet, right, it, right. Th- through markets, uh, and that's pretty, <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it's really remarkable, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of Christians out there who are, I don't know what alternate story they have for why India and China and much of the developing world and now soon Africa has has risen out of poverty or or fast rising out of poverty. But there seems to be a a bias against wealth, Um, whether it's whether, whether it's having wealth or whatever. I think maybe they just think of wealth as money. I mean, what what's so bad about wealth? I mean, yeah. I'm sorry, I keep jumping here. No I problem. When people say, quote, wealth, they they aren't thinking of themselves. They're thinking of really, really wealthy people mm-hmm. whose, whose uh, material wealth exceeds uh, the norm by a, a lot. And they don't, they don't realize that what's happened in the last, really almost miraculously in the last... Uh, 25 or so years is that the world has uh, increased its, quote, wealth to the point where an awful lot of people are wealthy in the sense that they have more than they need for basic sustenance. It wasn't that long ago that we were, we were uh, preoccupied with places like Bangladesh, and I can go back um, into the 70s and 60s, where we had massive, um, massive areas of the world in which people were starving, children and and, uh, everyone utterly cut off from any sort of sustenance. So it's pretty amazing that an awful lot of that, if not all of that, has been addressed. Um, And, you know, whether people want to admit it or not, it's been addressed pretty much by countries that have adopted versions of market capitalism with with a surplus of wealth that they've produced. Yeah. 
There seems to be this tension with people like on the Christian left who uh, sort of eschew wealth on the one hand, yet they need that wealth to address the poverty concerns. I mean, they always think of it through through means of redistribution, but they somehow we need the wealth of Jeff Bezos and and et cetera in order to like solve poverty. You know, like the memes on Facebook are, you know, the top five richest people made enough profit to end poverty 10 times this year or something along those lines. Um, but right. you know, one, one of the things that I appreciated about your book was that it was, it was deeply theological. It wasn't just some, uh, and, and I think these right. books are necessary. It isn't just, it's not really a defense of capitalism per se, although you assume it's goodness in, in a large, to a large extent. Uh, it, it isn't one of those like, well, look at what capitalism has done for us. And uh, it's really a go. You, you pretty much went through the whole Bible and said, this is what God's vision for humanity was 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 all about. Uh, could you could you give us a little taste of what what that is? I want people to buy your book so you can't give away everything. Uh, plus, we you know, we don't have time to. Uh, but um, where where does it start? You know, back when your book was written, I was reading a lot of books that were kind of, I would say they're like Christian environmental treatises, maybe not the whole book, but like parts of it were trying to say that, you know, we need to take care of creation. And what they were doing was saying that, you know, be fruitful and multiply was a completely abused uh, verse by the people who, you know, ravaged North America by colonizing it and just didn't take any concern for the environment because, you know, we can do whatever we want to to the world. And so there's a lot of sort of anti or there's a lot of Christian sentiment against dominion theology. Um, are, are they just misunderstood, misguided? Where's or I mean, uh, surely we can judge a little bit about what people did in the past and that they didn't, you know, take care of the environment as well as, as well as they ought to have, but that doesn't mean we should abandon it altogether. Does it? I'm not sure. I understand what you mean by dominion theology. Can you explain it a little more? Yeah. I mean, well, I, know, it's... I, know, I know about the, uh, 
the reconstruction us yeah. definition of minion theology is that the one you're using? Well, th- just the idea that uh, in the in Genesis, God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to uh, have dominion over the earth. And the that has been pretty pretty well, uh, I would say, on the Christian left, especially they have pretty much you know outcried against the previous interpretations of that verse that says, well, we can we can conquer lands and we can do whatever we want because God says be fruitful and multiply and you know we can't harm the environment, we can't do anything wrong. We're just we're on the top of the food chain. And so there was this very like cavalier attitude by those who interpreted it, you know, took it very, very seriously. Um and it right. seemed it seemed like in your book that you you see the be fruitful and multiply, you know, command in a more theological sense, okay. not not now, destructive, but more actually an improvement of the world. Right. I, I, I think the term dominion is really loaded. Um, it's used in Genesis. And I, as you know from reading my book, you say it, you see that I take it very seriously in that um, the Imago Dei or image of God in Genesis means that human beings have quote, dominion over not only um, um, the um, creatures of the world, but the entire earth. That's the that's the idea. And so naturally there's a lot of skepticism about what whether that uh, that uh, biblical um uh, it is biblical. Um, mandate for human dominion is a good thing or bad thing, and I try to I try to explain how it's um, both in a sense it's uh, properly understood a very good thing in that human dominion entails care for the creation, not uh, exploitation and uh, destruction. That's a, you know, of course, a long subject, but uh, the, um, you know, I think there's just a lot of uh, stuff here that is uh, in need of serious discussion and uh, bringing out that hasn't been done yet. You know, the other thing that, you know, once you once you come out of Genesis, we get into Exodus and you you see the primary narrative or a motif of liberation theologies has been the Exodus. And, you know, if anybody has read a liberation theologian uh, talk about what the gospel is about, uh, they're going to, you know, kind of preclude that by going back to Exodus and saying that God is the kind of God who pulls people out of bondage, who pulls people out of the oppression that they're in. And, you know, eventually there's a little bit of Marxism that gets in, <laughs> infiltrated into that theology. Right. Uh, but one of the, but there is the a motif of liberation. Um, but, right. uh, you know, you, you say that there's a lot of things that people miss when they read the Exodus narrative from the liberation standpoint. So what are what are some things that we can learn from the Exodus that uh, 
that gives us sort of the foundation that this culture of affluence, uh, we might call it capitalism, but that there's there's this culture around affluence and that it's okay to that there is a prosperity that is to be had that's that's balanced and and healthy. Well, I, I think the good thing there is that yeah, um, those tax those those uh, um, so called. Uh, Jubilee texts and so on. The Holiness Code in Leviticus very strongly support um, you know, an attitude that we sh- we should all of us, any any person committed to Christianity, committed to Judaism, Christianity, or anything formed by these kinds of texts, should be strongly sensitive to the uh, conditions of the poor. Um, you know, all kinds of um, senses in which we should try to help people in those those awful states of uh, economic being. Mm-hmm. But, um, right, but uh, to, to take these texts as a basis for socialism is a really bad mistake. As I explained in the book, it's pretty obvious, really. They're not about the state control of economies in the in the sense of socialism is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's it's kind of unfortunate that texts like this that are mostly humane have often been incorporated by um, liberation theologians as a basis for socialism. You know state-controlled um, sense, it's, it's just unfortunate. I mean, these texts just don't support that kind of move, really. Um, you have to support that kind of move in other ways, and unfortunately, those other ways don't work either. Yeah, right, right. Well, one thing that is true about the Exodus is also that God made a promise to Israel that was their own land where there would be prosperity. Um, you know, if, if it seems to me that if God wants everyone to be poor, uh, which is sometimes what some people think, uh, is that there's this sort of like, um, I don't know, blessing in being poor. And I don't mean that there isn't the blessing in being poor, but that there, that's something that we ought to strive for is, you know, this asceticism, uh, that why would God want to liberate people if that's the case? Like, why wouldn't God just show up and be specially present with slaves and show his presence in that way? But instead, there is, nope, that's not where you ought to be. You ought to be in your own land. Okay. Well, my view is that the use of these texts, you know, where God empowers and makes Israel prosperous, is badly misused by prosperity gospel people. Mm-hmm. Say, oh no, we can expect God to do the same thing for us if we're just faithful. Right, and that's not the case at all. Is, and all of that might happen, and does happen. I think the point of those texts is that in an afterlife, that is exactly the vision that God has for all human and non human beings. That there will be um, in the next life a great flourishing of people and non-human beings. But um, to think that these promises apply only to 
uh, the experience of people prior to death is really to mislead them and um, not just to mislead them, but to do so in a way that is very damaging. Mm-hmm. This is a point where I think my book has been misunderstood by a lot of folks. I don't, I don't um, chime in at all with the uh, so-called prosperity gospel. In fact, I I think the prosperity gospel, uh, so far as I understand it, is really bad, really uh, unfortunate and mm-hmm. damaging in, uh, in that way. So I would want to make sure that people don't hear me and see me saying anything that supports it. Yeah, you know, I I found it interesting. You said you said before we went on air that that uh, the book was a little bit written off by people who thought it was sort of promoting that. Right, exactly. I got I got terrible reviews from some people for that reason, and it's just it's just not true. I almost wonder if those people even read the book. <laughs> they didn't. No, I have one reviewer, uh, and I'm going to say it was the Christian Century, which is a pretty major. Uh, Publication where they invited someone to review the book. Uh-huh. Her name is Lillian, Lillian Daniel. Very nice person, and all that, but uh, um, she clearly had not read past the introduction of the book before she reviewed it. It was clear. So, so there you go. That yeah, gives you some idea as to how, how blocked off certain people are to the proposition that offense is a good thing. That yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's evidence that when you have a book and I can understand maybe if all they read were the title that maybe that's where the book was. I mean, that's sort of where I kind of assumed it was. But I mean, it was very early on where you did. It's yeah, not the title. What's that? Just from the title. That's what you assumed. Uh, seeking God in a culture I mean, I, of wealth. I don't, I don't, the interesting thing for me is that I. I went back and forth with my publisher about the title, and that's the one they liked the best. Uh-huh. Um, and I thought, well, maybe we should have a title that protected me a little bit more from that assumption. I don't know what you think. Well, I think I didn't know what the word affluence really meant until I read the book, which which is unfortunate because right. I thought the word affluent, uh, of course, uh, it didn't say the, the title is the good of affluence, not the good of being affluent. Uh, and so you can misread the title. So I did. I misread the title. And that's a that's a danger, of course. Oh, yeah. point. So it's all on me that that I sort of made the wrong assumption, uh, but well, not really. I mean, <laughs> if you made the wrong assumption, no, honestly, if you made the wrong assumption, there may be something um, to blame in the in the labeling. Hmm. Well, maybe, but even I, so, I, I've frankly, I've frankly been very embarrassed 
by um, being associated with a view that that supports people I don't support, namely um, many people who are promoting policies that hurt ordinary folks and so forth. And so the last thing I learned was for my book to be associated with support of that um, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so the, the important thing, maybe, uh, maybe the book needs to be retitled. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a good title once I know what's in it. Maybe, maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I... The thing is, for me, I read a book like that, and, and, and I've read it, of course, and I read every bit of it. I, I don't read every book that I read. Uh, you know, sometimes I skip the last chapter, or there might be a few chapters where I, you know, you know, gloss over a bit. But this was one that I wanted to like read every paragraph, and it was very. It's very interesting to me to hear that you you were written off with like it's a prosperity gospel leaning kind of thing and i think it's evidence that a lot of people can't think beyond prosperity gospel on one side or we need to be you know really skeptical of wealth on the other and <laughs> you know in in my head i'm thinking well I, you know i kept it on my shelf knowing that i'm going to read this book someday for a few years thinking well i don't have anything against affluence i just didn't at the time, you know, know exactly, you know, what I was going to get out of the book. And then, of course, you know, I pick it up this year and I'm amazed by it. So, you know, but we, we've kind of gone through that. We were kind of going through the Bible a little bit here and we were talking about the Exodus narrative and the kind of ways that people misunderstand, uh, you know, the Exodus narrative and what God promises. One of the things that is very prominent lately is to go to some of the prophetic texts uh, and look at the prophetic tradition and, you know, you know, the prophets were very anti, they were very anti-wealth on the one hand, if you read some things out of context, but what, what were they really teaching is, is, is the question. And you go into that in the book. Well, can, I, can I make a mild correction to your statement? Oh, there? sure. You know, wasn't uh, meant to be utterly precise. Because I don't think the prophets even remotely wanted to criticize wealth. The whole promise of the Messiah was that the Messiah would bring great wealth, right? Um, and would do so in a way that would create an eternal kingdom. What the prophet opposed was the misuse of contemporary wealth. That is, if people um, became wealthy before the Messiah came, they had tremendously great responsibility to um, use their wealth and to employ their wealth in certain ways. So I'm, I'm wanting to emphasize that. Yeah, so we're basically misreading the prophets by assuming by assuming that they were against wealth. Well, they weren't, they weren't even remotely against wealth. They, they were, I mean, there's nothing in the prophets against wealth. There's only uh, against the, the use of, of power and wealth to exploit weak people. But the whole basis for that is, uh, and context for that, is a tremendous uh, affirmation of the goodness of wealth, which is inherent in the Messianic promise of the kingdom of God. And it's described, of course, in the, in the last chapters of Isaiah um, in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, Jesus is 
and I, you know, I stress this in the book, is famous and notorious for not um, condemning wealth per se. Luke, I think, you know, I make this argument in Luke um, that what he condemns is a horrible approach to wealth when it happens. And of course, wealth in that context is a lot different than wealth as it is now. Yeah, right. But I think we can still make that bridge work. Yeah, I, your your uh, take on Luke is very. Uh, I really like how you went through the book of Luke and talked about the the misapplication, misunderstanding of what Jesus was doing and how it fit in with the prophetic tradition. I hope listeners can go and and read that. Just I mean, that was almost worth the price of the book itself, uh, because well, I, I'm be- going to say that as the writer of the book, yeah, I think the stuff on Luke is and Acts is probably uh, the best part of the book. Yeah, I mean, now, I mean, I wrote the book a long time ago, so you and I are discussing a book. Normally, we wouldn't be interviewing on a book that was written 15 years ago. <laughs> but, no, I mean, it was. And it's, but the fact is, the book still has um, relevance. Oh, um, it does, despite, yeah. Yes, but the thing is, if, if listeners are at all, I mean, I think the, um, the sections on Luke... And the New Testament are honestly worth the price of the book. Yeah. Well, and it's not a super long book, too. So it's not it's neither expensive nor long. I mean, it's slightly over 200 pages uh, in, in the copy that I have here. So it's like, you know, it's not not too terribly long. Hey, folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. Uh, no, I think it, I think the relevance is because now we are hearing a lot of anti-wealth rhetoric coming from the political class. And it is – and the only – I would say the only ammunition, so to speak, that Christians have are, you know – not anecdotal or, or data driven by capitalism has gotten us, you know, if, if you care about poverty, then capitalism is the way is the ticket out and global capitalism is creating that. And so we have that sort of I would you know, I wouldn't call it. It's not a it's an economic argument. It's a it's an empirical argument. But libertarian Christians go in that direction with their justification for all good things that that create wealth. Well, we have to have some sort of wealth right. creation mechanism. Uh, but there's also theological there's theological foundations. And, you know, an, another thing, I, I actually know somebody who has created great wealth for themselves and for other people uh, through the businesses that they run. And I do know that that person actually struggled early on with being so successful at doing just what he knew to be good work. Um, with, with, and, 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 and yet somehow there's this unexpected prosperity and they were like, well, is this right? I mean, is this, you know, and they, the, the faith tradition that they grew up in was not prosperity gospel by any stretch. It was more in the, the pietist and a Baptist tradition and wealth was something that you didn't deal with too strongly. And, you know, yeah, I know people and, um, Back when I wrote the book, uh, this was on top of the Clinton boom, so-called. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I know individuals who are dealing with more than a billion dollars 
of that question. That question. Yeah. What in the world do I do sitting on top of this like some dragon? And that's happening now again. I mean, a lot of a lot of folks don't want to acknowledge Trump, uh, and I'm not commenting on Trump here. But uh, what he has done is unleash uh, another uh, great big wave of wealth creation mm-hmm. in uh, parts of the economy, and people are just wondering. I mean, good people. Sort of, what do I do with this? I'm getting rich beyond my wildest dreams. Usually through investments. Um, so now what? Yeah. How do you do this as a Christian? How do you do this as a Christian? I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't do any good to just say, "Oh, wealth is bad." What do you even mean by that? And so that's that's where I stepped in. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think it it serves its it serves a good a good purpose there and, and relevance there. I mean, should should all the all the billionaires of the world do what the early church did and share all things in common and and you know get sell everything they have and give to the poor? I mean, is that is that how we should well, interpret what and, happened in and, the early church? And even the early church didn't do that. It, and, you know, Luke is a is um, an act is uh, uh, fiction. It's a fictionalized, um, I think, mostly fictionalized account of what would happen. There probably were some people who, who liquidated their property and probably had good reasons to do it. Um, but uh, I don't. I don't know about all that. But you have, you know. Um, all, I mean, there, there's no, um, all the research shows that early Christianity was a middle class, was a, was a fairly strong property movement. I mean, it just goes on and on. I, I bring this out in the book, one chapter of the book that hasn't really gotten a lot of attention. It's just the, the, the chapter on the sociological nature of early Christianity where I, I don't do anything original. I just pulled together um, pretty well-established social research, historical research on the uh, nature of the first Christian communities, which were, were, I mean, if we can talk about a middle class um, in that context, that's what they were. They weren't poor uh, in the sense that they didn't have uh, basic means to basic uh, necessities. They were, um, you know, merchants and people in uh, conditions very like the ones Jesus grew up in. If we can take the gospel seriously, he mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, brought up in a in a home where they had um, pretty reliable income and uh, stable economic existence. The, the idea that Jesus was poor is So the you know the book we're talking about here is uh, you know we've said the title over and over here uh, the good of affluence seeking God in a culture of wealth with 
Dr. John R. Schneider. Uh, it's it's under 20 bucks on Amazon right now. Uh, you can get it on Kindle for about 12 bucks. And I highly encourage all of our listeners to go and uh, go and download it or purchase it and read it and take your time with it. Uh, it is it is such a good read through. There's so much. I highlighted a lot. I, I always highlight in books, but this one I highlighted a lot because there were just a lot of really like relevant things that sort of bolstered my faith in what good what good Christian theology is like. And not a lot of people take that tack on, uh, take that approach on the idea of wealth. And everybody who does, I mean, even when you do it well, like you're doing it, John, it gets thrown into the, uh, thrown to the wayside on prosperity gospel, but it's nothing like the prosperity gospel uh, Thanks for making at all. Thanks for that, yeah. Yeah, it's nothing like it. I mean, it's it's oh man, it's it's unfortunate because uh, it's so it's so important to to do what you're doing in that and uh, in there as well. Um, and also, we didn't really talk about it here, but you do mention early on that there's this sort of like running side commentary with the Ron Sider uh, development of his Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Uh, you know, and all the right. the numerous republications that that has undergone, and how his his views have evolved. Uh, apparently, toward a better, toward a <laughs> a little bit less inconsistent view. Um, but uh, yeah, so the good of affluence, go and get it. Uh, but you have another book coming out, uh, I think, in the near future. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and and uh, what what you've written there? Well, all I can say now is it's not um, official. Yet, but I'm uh, hoping uh, that the uh, book I've been working on for about five years on uh, Darwinism and the suffering of animals is uh, related to uh, the problem of evil and belief in God will be coming out. Um, I hope in 2019, but I can't say for sure. Yeah, yeah. Once you've it's, written, it's not uh, it's a, in your control as to when it yes, comes out. Book written and uh, pretty much ready to go. Uh, it's just a tough topic, uh, like the, like the one we've just been discussing. So yeah, um, I hope that uh, that your listeners will. Uh, well, read the uh, book, The Good of Affluence. Uh, I I think it's it's still um, worth reading. So thanks for putting me on here. And, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll talk later about the other book. In, yeah, we'll in stay. Yeah, we'll stay connected and do that. If I get any uh, feedback from our listeners or even our readers, uh, I'll I'll be sure to pass along that feedback to you. Well, John, thanks for being with us. Oh, I'm very glad to, and thanks a lot, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Music